Ready to listen in on another CMO combo? You're in luck, as we're joined by Chris Kelly, CEO and co-founder of Upwave, and we're digging into the state of brand analytics. Is it possible to effectively measure your brand? What benefits can that have? How can you pull everything together across fragmented systems? Listen in as we tackle all those questions and more. Hi, Chris. Welcome to CMO Combo. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Will. Thanks for having me. I'm very happy you're here today because it's a, it's a topic that is quite near and dear to the hearts of many, uh, many of our audience. And we're talking about brand marketing analytics and how that even works these days. Like, is it even possible? Like, what does it even mean? Uh, but before we get into that, Chris, could you, uh, could you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a bit about yourself and um, why you're speaking to us today. Sure. I'm Chris Kelly, founder and CEO of Upwave. Upwave is an analytics company, and we are analytics for brand advertising. So we sell a software platform to the world's biggest brands and their media agencies and their media partners. And that software platform helps them answer the age-old question of does brand advertising work? The uh, question that people have tried to answer for 100 years now. So we've making some advances, leveraging machine learning to help understand that question that CMOs think about every day. Does my massive brand budget actually pay off? Or, or even if they haven't got that brand budget, like how can they pitch for more budget for that? Like they need to be able to show that brands, marketing and brand activities actually work. And that can be very, very difficult in certain scenarios, particularly in like a startup scenario where it's all about demand gens, all about hitting those growth figures. You might not have the time to be able to time all the resources to devote to, to brand marketing because you can't show its effectiveness. And so is that is that why we need a brand marketing analytics process is really just, just to show that brand marketing works? Yeah, it's just show whether it works, how it works, why it works. All those questions need to be answered to justify the spend. And it's interesting. I think a lot of people don't know how often, especially at larger companies, CMOs really have to go to bat for their whole marketing budget, but especially their brand budget. And they're pitching usually a CFO whose job is not to understand exactly how marketing works. Their job is to look at numbers and justify those numbers. So if you if you're a CMO trying to justify your top of funnel brand dollars, that can be hard because the point of brand is it doesn't pay off overnight. Brand is top of funnel, it generates demand, it doesn't capture demand. So we've had a lot of conversations with CMOs over the year where they they kind of will quietly complain and complains a, a nice word about their, <laughs> their CFO's understanding of how brand marketing really pays off. And we view, our job, not just at Upway, but I think everyone in the analytics community is arming CMOs with the the right answer. And the job is not just to give them the answer they want to hear and just always tell them that uh, brand marketing works and that no one's rigging their software to to put their uh, finger on the scale of of whether the marketing is working or not. But you have to give them true analytics that they can use in those CFO conversations about it. And it's it's interesting. We we talk to CMOs about this struggle and we've coined this concept we call the CMO's dilemma. And to put it bluntly, that dilemma is to waste money or get fired. Because <laughs> a, a lot of CMOs tell us that they they know they have to invest in brand marketing to grow their brands long term. They they know that and the the research is clear on that. Many of your listeners may know the some seminal research from uh, two gentlemen in the UK, Binet and Fields. And if if you Google Binet and Fields marketing effectiveness, you'll see some really interesting work done. And it measures the long-term impact of, 
of brand marketing. And it shows that you, you and it, it shows how you should balance this trade-off between short-term sales activation, i.e. performance marketing, and longer-term growth, i.e. brand marketing. And their rough rule of thumb starting point heuristic for all marketers is 60-40, 60% brand, 40% performance. And obviously your mileage may vary, depends on what space you're in, what your product is, what stage your company's in. But that's the starting point they try to anchor people to. And we've talked to a lot of CMOs say, I know I need to do my 60-40 split, but, and if I don't do that, I'm wasting money. I'm just throwing money at performance campaigns that aren't aren't actually going to generate new demand. I'm just throwing dollars at the bottom of the funnel. And I'm, I'm my attribution model is pretending that those dollars led to sales, but I'm just advertising people who are, were already going to buy. So I'm wasting money. But if I don't do that, um, then I'm waiting for, I can't wait for years for my brand results to pay off. That's the path to getting fired. So, so I'm, I'm either doing something I know is wrong, or if I do what I know is right, and I don't have the measurement for it, then I get fired because CFOs will fire CMOs if they think they're spending money that doesn't have a clear payoff. So, so I think as an analytics community, we have to solve that CMOs dilemma and arm CMOs with the data to actually know today what the future results of their brand building will be. And, and, and that sort of disconnect between what CFOs want or other, other key stakeholders, it's not all just the CFOs fault, we'll make that clear. Um, what, what, other, what other stakeholders want and what the CMOs know is right, that disconnect is why CMOs have such a short tenure. They've got the shortest tenure out of any members of the yep. C-suite. Um, I think it, its average is something like three years, which is not enough time to see kind of results from brand marketing activities from to really show the impact of that t- type of long-term growth opportunities. Um, so you mentioned the big keyword and that's attribution, performance marketing. You can attribute stuff. You can see like how, what your dollars are actually impacting, what return on investment you're getting in a clear way. And I think that's why CFOs like it. Is it possible to have that kind of model in place for brand marketing activities? Yeah, no, a couple of good comments in there. So I, I agree on the short tenure. I've heard worse stats than that. I've heard 18 months, maybe it varies by country, by by industry, by stage of company, but I've heard and seen some data that in, some people argue the average CMO tenure is as short as 18 months. And it's, it's shrinking no matter what data set you look at, it's 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 getting worse. And and yeah, it's interesting. I, I correct the, a, I, I nitpick on semantics of, of how CFOs think about attribution with the word you mentioned, impact of how spend is impacting sales. We argue that that's not true. And attribution, you're tying, it's it's correlation. It's not causal, right? So you're knowing that an event happened and then a future event happened. You're knowing someone saw the ad and then someone converted. And yes, the initial elementary thought is to say, cool, then I saw the ad and I converted. Therefore, I can that, that ad impacted the conversion. And some of your listeners may know the old story and, and the old uh, parable about the pizza store coupons that kind of shows the silliness of, of just blindly relying on, on attribution and not doing causal measurement or incrementality measurement, you could argue is, is the alternative approach to just attribution. So this, the parable goes that there's a pizza store owner who wanted to drive more sales. So they realized that they gave out, I don't know, $5 off coupons for a, a whole pizza that they could drive more sales. So they, and they thought, well, I'm going to have an attribution system. I'm going to hire a bunch of kids to give out coupons across town. 
and they're going to write their name on the back. So I have an attribution system, right? I can tie which coupon came from which kid. And then I can tie each pizza sale to the coupon. So I know which kid is driving the most pizza sales, right? It seems pretty straightforward. So they, um, they did this for a couple of weeks, looked at the data and they, one kid was off the chart successful in driving pizza sales with the coupons. So they asked the kid, Hey, how did you do this? how did you figure out how to drive the most pizza sales by giving out coupons? He said, it was easy. I stood at the door of the pizza shop and I handed <laughs> coupons to everyone who walked in. And of course, when you realize the punchline, you see, well, that's silly. That's, that's obviously didn't cause the sales that just kind of tagged the sales <laughs> that were already happening. And that is, it sounds asinine to, to argue that happens at world-class <laughs> brands and uh, at massive multi-billion dollar companies, but it absolutely does. And we've, we've seen this. And one example that was, uh, all over the the press um, that you can your listeners can Google was uh, Uber talked about this. So Uber uh, had some problems with their performance marketing partners, the performance marketing networks they're using to run ads. A few years ago, this is probably going back, I don't know, three four years by now. And their attribution models were saying these performance marketing partners were working, but then they they saw some fraudulent inventory, so they just turned off the 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 performance marketing partners. And there was no dip in signups. I think that these were, I forget if it's driving rider signups or driver signups, but there was no change in outcomes when they turned off the partners. And the attribution model simply started saying that all those, all those signups that would have been uh, from this performance networks were just organic. So the attribution just, there was, there's no one handing out uh, coupons at the front door anymore, but lo and behold, they sold the same amount of pizzas. So the attribution models just said, "Oh, these are organic now. They're not. They're not. Uh, they're not per, uh, performance uh, marketing-driven uh, signups anymore." So that was a pretty uh, crazy example. At, at that time, Uber was, um, I imagine, a top twenty advertiser. They were spending a lot of money back then. Um, and again, this is all publicly available. They've uh, some some marketers there have written about this, and there's been articles about this. So I think that's in a, in a more real-world example besides my pizza parable that shows how you have to be careful assuming that just because someone saw an ad and then took an action that the ad actually caused the uh, caused the conversion. That's what you need incrementality measurement through experimental design, which you, you can do through a variety of, of companies and a variety of platforms to actually know if, if I hadn't advertised, then how much pizza would have I have sold? If I hadn't advertised, then how many rider signups would I have gotten? Okay, cool, cool. And um, yeah, I'm suddenly very hungry for pizza, but I'll try and battle for it. Um, so when it, uh, when it comes to brand marketing, though, like how do you actually measure the success of brand marketing? Like how do you actually show the impact of brand marketing on company growth? Like, well, often when that question gets asked, people pull out lots of, I suppose, maybe vanity metrics, so like social media buzz, that kind of thing, like followers on social media, that kind of thing, like engagement with articles, rather than actually showing actually the cause and effect of like the brand marketing activities? Like how do you actually show the impact of brand marketing? Yeah, we usually hear marketers split what they want to see into a couple buckets and then maybe some sub buckets within those. So the first split we hear marketers make is talk about their delivery metrics and then their outcome metrics. So the delivery metrics are marketers wanting to understand whether they uh, are got ripped off. Do they get what they paid for? Do they actually show the ads? Uh, in, in the right places, the right people. So were they delivered properly? And then they want to talk about the outcome metrics. So 
did anything actually happen, which I think is more to your, your question, but the delivery metrics are important. So, and there's a lot of companies out there working on, on that. Um, some of them are now public ad measurement companies. So they've, they've done well focusing just on the delivery metric piece. And that's something like, did my, was, was my ad uh, viewable? So if I show a digital ad and it's below the fold and the human never scrolls to it, uh, that's that ad was never viewed. So that's the viewability measurements important to brand marketers, less so to performance marketers because they're just tracking a click. They, they may not look at that. They're just trying to see if a click was driven, but brand marketers want to know if they actually got the brand exposure they, they paid for. And there's other aspects of that. There's companies out there that focus on, was, was it a, a not a human who saw it was a robot who saw the ad, uh, which is important, not just on digital, but also on, on CTV, there's a lot of CTV fraud out there that your listeners have probably read about. Um, and it's also important that you even re reach the right person. I heard someone say recently that you have to make sure you're showing your mayonnaise ads to the mayonnaise eaters. So when when marketers think about delivery metrics, they also think about, well, am I even showing this to the right person? Am I if I'm advertising uh, for pet food, am I actually showing my ad to people who saw pets? So they care about that audience verification as well and, and different approaches to that. So that all that stuff is, is on the delivery side. Am I, am I delivering my ads to the right person? And then, then the question is, is the outcomes. And as you asked about how do they know this actually is paying off? And that, that brings up the, the first philosophical question that marketers need to align on is what, what when I talk about payoff, what do I mean in terms of time frame? So certainly not every brand campaign is designed to drive a sale. And we use a, an American football analogy that I'll, I'll share. So obviously people will think, well, the point of advertising is to drive sales, right? Point of advertising is to drive growth. And that's a, a simplistic mindset. You'll certainly hear from, from CFOs again. And I don't mean to be mean to my CFO friends. Listen, <laughs> we love your work and you're doing, you're doing your job, <laughs> but uh, our, our job is to inform you of some of the nuances of, of the, these payoffs. But we, we say just because you, you, you agree that the point of advertising that drives sales doesn't mean the point of every ad impression or even every campaign is to drive a sale. And the analogy we use in American football is it's like saying the point of the, the offensive side of the ball is to score a touchdown. The point of uh, having an offense is to score a touchdown. Therefore, like I, I'm going to analyze my American football plays to see which ones scored the most touchdowns and run the, that play the most. And, Lo and behold, the QB sneak, the one-yard QB sneak scored the most touchdown. That scored a touchdown on 40% of the times it was run. It's like your listeners realize, well, that's silly. That's only because you only run a QB sneak once you get to the goal line. <laughs> so, of course, you can, you can, you can um, score from the one-yard line on the QB sneak, but you can't run that all the way down the field, right? You run on the goal line, you run it on fourth and one, et cetera. And you realize, yeah, I guess I have to run other plays that get me down the field, and then I can run other specific plays that get me into the end zone. So that's how we think about brand and performance. You have to a, a campaign can be successful without driving sales because it gets you down the field. It's that long pass in the middle of the field that helps you drive towards the end zone. That's that's brand marketing. Performance marketing gets you into the end zone. But you have to use both in concert with each other, and you have to have both uh, both in your your playbook because it's silly to think of if I'm introducing a new brand and consumers have never heard of it in most categories, it's not feasible to believe they're going to see an ad, jump off the couch, run to the store and buy it. Right. They, and imagine this, the sales cycle of some 
categories in automotive, in luxury, et cetera. Like you're not going to see an ad and then walk the store and buy a Lexus or a Rolex, right? <laughs> those, those brands invest years in building favorability and, and drive and building slow consideration. So you, you're, they're driving you down, down the field. Um, or in other cases, moving away from just high value goods, um, even in certain CPG categories, marketers invest heavily just to keep you in the consideration set for a future purchase. So, uh, a great example people share a lot is in cold and flu categories. So when I make a decision to buy a cold or flu product, like we are a lot in the <laughs> during cold and flu season here in the Bay Area, um, it's unlikely I'm going to see an ad and then say, that's a good product. I may need that one day and run and buy it. What happens is I get advertised, and this is why cold and flu advertisers advertise year long. They're keeping you top of mind. So that like when I have my trigger event, which is I... Uh, get sick or my spouse gets sick or my kids get sick. I walk to the store and I quickly look at the shelf and I reach and grab a bottle that looks familiar to me. And that's how the, in most cases, the decision cycle looks like in the cold and flu category. So performance marketing isn't that helpful there, right? It's not like, oh, I saw an ad that was 5% off a cold and flu product. I'm going to click on it and buy it, right? <laughs> that's you, you had to have advertised to me and have convinced me. You had to convince me months ago of your product's efficacy. So when I'm in a hurry because I have a sick toddler and running to the story, I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about it. I'm going to pick a product that I've heard of that I've already decided works. So that's another example of that. We, it's silly, I think, to just take this, the point of advertising is to drive sale. Therefore, every single impression needs to tie back to a sale or is wasted. It's just, just not the reality of how um, uh, brand marketing actually works. And interestingly, I think this th this misconception is more popular among tech people. I'll, I'll blame the Bay Area where I live for this mindset. You you talk to traditional brand marketers. What I'm saying is is incredibly elementary, and it's <laughs> it hasn't been new thinking for for decades. And this is just obvious of how brand marketing works. But a lot of uh, people in the Bay Area, I, I have a bunch of theories of why this may or may not be the case. Uh, take more of that. This is everything's performance marketing. Brand is fuzzy. Brand is squishy. Brand may be something that people do out in the Midwest, not here in the Bay Area, where <laughs> where all where all the smart people live. So they we 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 have this um, irrational kind of condescending view of brand marketing in the startup community, and it's just it it it's so crazy because you're you're giving up on so much growth potential if you're not properly utilizing brand marketing. It's such a breath of fresh air now when startups and companies take a sort of brand first approach uh, one of my one of my favorite b2b brands out there is gong i don't know if you're familiar with them of course yeah Chris, we, we yeah. use one of their competitors uh chorus but yeah i certainly know gong they're both they're both yeah. doing well but their, but their, 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 their brand is so i i don't even use gong and i'm a huge fan of it just because of how great the brand <laughs> is like it, it's absolutely That's impressive yeah. what they've done there um and it's it's because they've taken a sort of brand first approach and it's it's really paying off for them their, their growth's been massive like they they've won a whole lieu of like awards and stuff like that in terms of like their marketing and also in terms of like their their positioning as a startup so taking that brand first approach has definitely been effective for them but then they've also been quite lucky because of their senior leadership is very very marketing focused so their their ceos a former marketer their cmo oh, Yudi, is um he's a very very i'm gonna say charismatic personality like you get very engaged with what he has to say about brand building stuff like that so he, he clearly has the motive and the ability to get people on side with his vision. That's got to be difficult in some companies where 
you don't have that kind of marketing focus in the senior leadership. Like a lot of the times CMOs are brought in quite late into a company's development. So there's already that quite close knit community. There's, there's that trust there between other members of senior leadership that they might not have for the CMO. So they need to show results pretty quickly. And that's going to be a problem when it comes to brand marketing. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like your point around the, the DNA, having a former marketer as a CMO matters. And I can see how that totally influences the organization's decision. So that's, and I did not know that about Gong. That's really interesting. It does probably explain the marketing focus you you mentioned. And and, and I admit B, B2B is, is harder. Most of what I've uh, been ranting about of people not fully appreciating brand marketing, that's based on my consumer, uh, my consumer facing experience. Most of the uh, companies we have the privilege of working with are consumer facing brands that can operate at a scale that you can't operate in, in a lot of B2B, uh, especially startup, right? I, I, so I totally get if, if you're a B2B startup that is six employees with, with one marketer and a shoestring marketing budget, you should not try to copy Unilever's playbook. You should not try <laughs> to copy Nike's playbook. You should not copy Gatorade's playbook like that, 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 that is probably obvious to people. And, and I can get how that, if it's obvious early days, you, you think, nope, I have to, <laughs> I only have six months of cash. I have to be, and I'm a six person company. I have to be driving sales or working out of business. Everything has to be down funnel. And that can make sense early on before you have the, the um, amount of capital needed to, to invest in brand properly. But we've seen a lot of startups kind of have the light, seen the light bulb go on later in their journey as they move from an early stage startup to a a growth stage startup, they'll say, aha, like brand is the rising tide that lifts all all boats of all channels. Like if I start investing in brand uh, and people know my brand more, my my click-through rates on my Google AdWords goes up, right? My click-through rates on Facebook go up. Everything goes up when I invest in brand and, and increase my brand awareness. Um, or interestingly, we've seen uh, a lot of startups realize, even if you're full on performance marketing uh, focus organization and like the ultimate performance marketing organizations like like cpc arbitrage businesses right that's all about lead gen sites that are about driving clicks and then getting you to click on something on their site and, and arbitraging that something that you think would never care about brand we've seen a lot of those sites start to think differently in the last few years because they've realized well, wait a second i have to drive more traffic and if I'm paying for traffic on Google, like the arbitrage events eventually closes because someone else can always pay a penny more for the click and do my same business. Google, it's, Google itself may be the competition, right? Look at all the travel sites that have to compete with Google putting their own travel results ahead of even the, the, the paid results in some cases. So if you're just relying on Google traffic, you, you're in trouble in a lot of categories. So therefore, you have to, you have to drive more and more direct, uh, tra direct traffic, direct navigation to your, your website or more organic traffic, people typing in your, your specific brand, your specific site name. And of course, the, the search bar is the ultimate test of unaided awareness, right? <laughs> uh, driving an in increase in direct traffic, driving increase in organic tra traffic is nothing but an exercise in increasing your brand awareness. That is classic brand marketing, whether startups know that or not. So when they're investing in ways to drive more direct traffic and drive more organic traffic, they're actually investing in brand, they're in investing in, in raising their brand awareness. And that's absolutely essential in some in some cases. If you can't have ninety nine percent of your traffic be paid in certain in certain categories, or your business model doesn't work, so you have to invest in brands in order to to drive more uh, organic traffic, drive more word of mouth, drive more direct navigation traffic. 
And that's interesting. I've, I've seen the, 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 a sea change on that in the last three, four or five years where brand was a dirty word to many of those businesses I'm describing. And now they're realizing, Oh, wait a second. I do need high brand awareness. <laughs> that's how I'll get people to come directly to my website. And I don't need to pay my $5 Google tax for every visit. And I, I suppose thinking about this uh, brand marketing and brand awareness from an early stage makes it a lot easier when it does become absolutely essential to have a, have a strong brand. If you've been fully, fully focused on performance marketing for uh, since the outset of, of your company growth, it's going to be a lot harder to suddenly think, oh, now we need a brand. Now we need to start building brand awareness. Whereas having that sort of like baked in from quite early on can be very, very effective in sort of long-term planning and not having to suddenly throw the baby out with the bathwater when it t- comes to time to make a change, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and DNA matters, uh, which we talked about the, the gong point, but it, it is funny. Sometimes I've seen a couple examples of companies being fully on team performance and being anti-team brand. And, and they talk about that as, as their marketing strategy, then you look closely and you realize they're not even living that they're actually benefiting from wonderful brand tactics they're doing. And they're, I, I won't, won't name names, but there's one um, startup that was a D2C startup, a, a D2C poster child that had a big exit and got a lot of attention. And I, I met people there and some of their investors who talked about every, every dollar of of um, marketing tied to a sale. And that was like religion within the company. Every single penny of Facebook ads had to tie to a sale. And then if, when you dig in and ask them more about their growth, it's like, wait a second, that's actually not how you're growing. You guys put out beautiful uh, brand, branded content that spread organically online and and had viral YouTube videos. Like that you're, you're creating immersive <laughs> stories that are uh, with a, a specific voice and tone that are consistent across the videos. Like that's just world-class brand marketing you're doing without even realizing you're actually growing because of your brand efforts uh, while not even realizing that. So mm-hmm. I, I see that, or, or, or I even talked to massive public companies where marketing team would say like, we don't make brand investments, everything we do is performance. Everything we do has to tie to an immediate sale or immediate signup. And I've asked them, you know, you guys sponsor sports stadiums. <laughs> so what, what are you, what are you talking about is I don't think someone walks by the sports stadium and then whips out their phone and signs up for your, your, your product. So you actually are investing in your top of funnel when you invest in a sports stadium. So there's, there's sometimes a disconnect of uh, maybe just uh, brand sounds squishy brand sounds, soft brand sounds fuzzy. So you don't even talk about it. You just, you, you put it in another budget, you call it sponsorships and put another budget, but it, it's, it's the same, however, uh, however you label it, it's, it's top of funnel investments that raise your awareness, raise your favorability, raise your consideration. Um, so that's funny. Sometimes when organizations who, um, kind of speak about not believing in brand are actually wildly successful brand marketers themselves. <laughs> So let, let's talk about actual brand marketing analytics processes. Like what, what does it look like? Like how, how does it, how does it work? Um, it, it, maybe if you can give us sort of, I'm sure it's very complicated. So if you, if you could give sort of like a brief overview of like how an ideal brand marketing analytics process works. Yeah. I guess and you know, to finish the, the thread from earlier around the, the outcomes piece. Um, so we see marketers want to care about brand outcomes and business outcomes. That's language they they use when they think of what, where, how do you actually get this to work and how do you then tie a brand outcome to a future 
business outcome. So a, a brand outcome would be driving some top of funnel lift. So that would be incremental lift in a brand KPI. So if a brand KPI is favorability, then you want to show that people who saw the ads were more likely favorable than people who didn't because of the fact that they were exposed by exposed to the ads. So that's what, why a lot of companies do this experimental design, meaning you're measuring people who are exposed to the ad in, in hopefully a privacy-friendly, consumer-friendly way, uh, measuring people who are not exposed to the ad, and then getting sentiment data in one way, shape, or form. There's various ways to do that. And you're looking for a change in, in sentiment, uh, in that case, favorability. So if, so in, in, in a very specific example, so a, a brand has good awareness, they want to spend a million dollars next week, next month, next quarter to increase their favorability. They will run the ads, use a partner to track uh, who was exposed to those ads across channels. And there's privacy-friendly ways now to track anonymous exposures on linear TV, on addressable TV, on connected TV, streaming, on, on digital, on, on podcasts, et cetera. So you can track those exposures. You can also track uh, who's not exposed. And you, there's a bunch of uh, data science wonky stuff I won't get into about uh, building good control groups and making sure that the people who saw the ads and didn't see the ads are only different on one dimension, which is uh, exposure to the ad. And then you can actually measure the, you can get favorability data from both uh, sets of people. And then if you're doing it right, you can actually show uh, the incremental lift. And that's that's an incrementality piece I talked about earlier instead of attribution. It's, so you're, you're not just showing, okay, this person saw the ad and they liked us, therefore the ad made them like us. You're actually using a control group. So an, analog, very analogous to how drug studies are done with, with control groups. A lot of brand marketers are using techniques that are things that um, drug studies use some, some kind of decades old experimental design techniques. So that's how you would measure an example of a top of funnel win, which is driving favorability is, is a control versus exposed measurement. And, and hopefully seeing that people in the exposed group had higher a favorability measurement and it can be captured through um, online interviews of consumers. That's an example of how to, you would get um, sentiment data. And you want to see an increase in favorability in the exposed group over the control group. So that, that would be a brand outcome. So that's, again, in the football, American football analogy, that's moving people down the field. That's not, um, of course, scoring a touchdown. So the question is, well, how do you know that an increase in favorability actually turns into a future, um, a future sale? And there's a few ways to do that. And, and first of all, look, for depending on the brand, they have to think of where they get their sales data. If your listeners are B2B SaaS companies, that's easy. They, the sales happen on their websites, <laughs> so they, they know it. So they have first-party conversion data. Not all brands have first-party conversion data. If you sell through retailers, you, you don't actually have first-party conversion data, right? Your, your grocery store has the data. So there's a whole other conversation of, of how you can get that data from sometimes retail partners themselves, but, but usually not. It's usually uh, companies that off that have deals with retail companies to, to uh, share that data. Companies that get the data from consumers. Some companies pay consumers to upload receipts from the grocery store, so they have a, a, a panel of purchase data. So there's a variety of ways, depending on your category, and it, it's how you get that conversion data. It, and it's different in automotive. It's different in pharma. Uh, there's companies that focus just on having uh, HIPAA compliant anonymous ways of getting uh, uh, prescription data. So you have to find a partner who can get you your conversion data. 
And it's usually hard to actually, your listeners might think, okay, I got it. I, I have my favorability lift that we just talked about. I have my conversion that maybe happened a few months later. I can tie those together. And, and sometimes the answer is yes. So sometimes you, you, uh, some identity, some identifier persists. And of course, cookies and maids are dying. So there's a whole other podcast we can do in the future of, of, of identifiers in, in MarTech, but ignoring that there are, there's other identifiers and other privacy safe household level identifiers out there that you can use in some cases to tie that direct lift from the top of funnel to bottom funnel. But usually that's hard because identifiers don't persist. Usually you'd have a, a sample size problem because your, your top of funnel measurement is, is done with samples. So the odds of that uh, actually t- want the person that you had lift date on tying to the future sale that's hard. So often you're you're modeling the funnel and then back testing it with uh, uh, purchase data at the at the population level or at the at the market share level. So uh, another approach, if you, if you can't tie a, a, an individual household that was lifted at the top of the funnel to an eventual sale, what you can look at is, and and model the funnel and say, okay, I understand how long the purchase cycle takes. So I can understand lift in these um, different parts of the funnel. And then I can look for a change and see if there's, and it looks like at a, at a bare minimum, a, a correlation, there's some kind of quasi-causal uh, techniques you, you, you can use in this case, but at a bare minimum, prove that there's correlation between a change in top of funnel and a future change in market share. So for example, we've seen marketers graph, okay, here's, I'm, I'm can graph my change in favorability versus my partners to say, I've, I'm have one competitor. I can measure how uh, my change in favorability versus their change in favorability. And then I know if I have a partner that gives me purchase data, or if I purchase data myself, then I can do um, uh, look for changes in, in market share. And I can say, okay, look, looks like, and sometimes there's a lag. We've seen examples where I think for um, some beverage categories, like a five month lag between a, a change in top of funnel and a change in market share. And it, it is predictive. So if you have enough data and have clean data in certain categories, it's it can be very predictive. Um, but sometimes five month lag, I think in a, a recent CPG example we did, it was a three or four month lag from a top of funnel win to a market share win. So it doesn't happen over night, which, which makes sense, right? You're not going to show someone that, uh, show, show someone an ad, have them like the, your brand and then run to the store and buy your shampoo overnight. Right. There's, yeah. there's, there's a, a purchase cycle and in, in these different categories. And, and I, I, it may take time to convince me to buy a new, a new brand of whiskey, a new brand of beer, right? It's not going to take one one exposure. So those are some um, uh, wonky and detailed uh, approaches, but certainly it's interesting what's possible these days. It's certainly in- it's interesting to hear what markers are doing to br- and they're bringing the this is the the data they're bringing to a CFO. This is the dashboards they're showing to a CFO to say, look, I increased favorability. That sounds meaningless to you. That sounds fuzzy to you. But look, I have analytics that prove to me that we can predict we're going to get a. 2% lift in market share in the next five months, we can put a dollar value on that. And then we can put an ROI in the brand dollars that we previously were not able to put an ROI on. So let, you mentioned some timescales and sample sizes there. Say a CMO wanted to 
experiment with this process. They haven't used it before. What kind of timescales and sample sizes are we talking here? Is it, is it very much dependent on the type of company in the vertical or is there sort of like a, a rough ballpark that you should aim for in terms of sample size and, and timescales to let this process run for? Yeah. I mean, the, so for, for timescale, um, that's fully category dependent uh, and, and, but longer is always better. So they're at, at the high end, some luxury categories that could take literally years for uh, the full effect of advertising to pay off. And those, those gentlemen I cited earlier, Benane Fields have done some, some research on this too, the time frame effect. And I think they said their, their rough rule of thumb was something like two years, the full effect of brand marketing's um, often not realized till, till, or usually not realized till two years out. So you should think, be, be ready to think in terms of years is the, is the short answer categories like luxury, obviously it's longer than categories like uh, potato chips and, and soda um, uh, automotive can be, can be longer, but, uh, but even in, even in some uh, purchases that you make um, weekly or monthly, like going to the store and buying soda, you, just because you, you, you buy it that frequently doesn't mean yet your decision cycle maps to that purchase cycle. So I may be a uh, Coke buyer and not a Pepsi buyer, uh, but, and just because I buy Coke at the store every week, doesn't mean that I, I like a Pepsi at this week, I'm going to buy Pepsi next week, right? It may take months for a new Pepsi campaign or new positioning or a new, a new um, claim they're making on a new type of soda they have or, or, or whatnot. And I don't drink soda. This is a bad example for me, <laughs> for me but your listeners probably see, see the point of a, a new claim on a product just because it, it comes out and starts to resonate with me. doesn't mean I'm going to uh, switch next time I go to the store. I may not switch for another couple months. So even in those, those categories where you get weekly purchases, it, it could be still months before a switch happens. So, so certainly um, at least months, uh, ideally years. And that's where when you're talking about years, uh, you, uh, individual identifiers start to break. So yeah, you have to use some of those other techniques I talk about versus tracking the same person for two years. That's, that's hard to do in a, in a privacy friendly mm-hmm. way. And um, so that's how we, how to think about time frame in terms of sample size you asked about um, again, the lazy answer is more is better, but I, I think about it from kind of a sample size of what. So for your, in, in that example, we walked through marketers are tracking a few things are tracking ad exposures of who was exposed to their advertisements on television, on streaming, on digital, on podcasts, et cetera. They're tracking some type of sentiment data. So through, if it's through online consumer interviews and they're interviewing people, so there's a sample size of that. And then they're and then they're tracking their sales. And if, if they don't have first party conversions, they might be getting a sample of sales, right? They might be using a partner that gives them has a panel of receipt data, so they're getting that that's sampled. So th- the answer for all those is is more is better. But the question is what's what's enough to be realistic? So for exposures, it's you can often exposure is the easiest thing, right? For digital exposures, you can basically track everything, right? You can you can have a uh, a, a privacy-friendly ad tracker that, um, and and th- there's ways to do this without even um, without dropping cookies, and and we encourage marketers to avoid fingerprinting or anything that that is trying to sneak around uh, consumers' intentions of being tracked. So there's ways, uh, privacy-friendly, often ways to to track ad exposures, and that you on digital and CTV, it's pretty straightforward to track everything. So you can just track all your exposures. On, on linear TV, you're usually 
sampling. They're data partners that have uh, television panels, basically. But you're usually thinking the in in the millions. So those panels have millions of households. So so it's it's pretty large. Um, the 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 middle scale I mentioned the sentiment data. That's usually smaller. So depending on the size of the campaign, we see marketers interview as much as kind of ten thousand people per campaign to get brand sentiment data to use for their lift measurement, their brand lift measurement. So tens of thousands at, at the high end, maybe maybe thousands or high hundreds at the low end if it's a smaller campaign. So that you can get away with less data because, and you do the math around margin of error to, to understand what you're learning. But um, you can, for a smaller campaign, learn a lot even just by having 800 people interviewed who are exposed and 800 you're controlled, for example. And then the purchase data, again, that's, that's larger. That's uh, if you're buying from a company that has grocery store data, maybe their panel is two or 3 million people. So maybe they, they'll have thousands to tens of thousands of people who bought your product last week. So that's, um, that's kind of a range you would, you would, of, of sample you'd expect on the purchase side. Again, that's, and that's only if you are buying third-party purchase data, if you're lucky enough to have first-party conversions and presumably you're tracking all of it and you're, you have every single conversion, every single conversion track. Awesome. Chris, this has been really, really great, really, really eye-opening for me, particularly in like the potential of how to measure brand as a whole. Like we all know that brand's important as marketers, but it's great to know that we are getting to a stage where we're actually gonna be able to show that value to other people in clear ways. So I'm sure our audience has found it very, very enlightening as well. Um, one last thing, um, say our audience wanted to investigate this further, maybe find some resources that they'd be able to take as like a case study to their, their CFOs or their CEOs to maybe get this process in mind. I'm assuming Upwave's got plenty of content, but is there any other resources that you'd recommend? Yeah, sure. So the since you invited the plug, upwave.com slash white papers, we have some resources that are uh, freely available, but other organizations. So uh, check out the uh, Advertising Research Foundation, the ARF. Uh, if, you, if you search for the ARF, uh, they're great thought leaders in in um, measuring the effectiveness of ads. So that's, that's a, a great place to start. Um, uh, they have a, another group they acquired called SIM, C-I-M-M. Um, that's another group that focuses on media measurement and um, does a lot of white, white papers around media measurements. Uh, check out those, those um, gentlemen I mentioned a couple of times, Binet and Fields, B-I-N-E-T and Fields. That's some phenomenal work about uh, how to think about short-term sales activation versus long-term brand building. And they looked across like tons of categories across many years. So it's, it's really interesting data. Um, and also um, the, the VAB, um, which folks on video advertising has put out some really interesting content. So a lot, a lot of those, those trade groups um, have done good work. Oh, and I'll, I'll close with the, the ANA, which is on the, on the, the advertisers trade group. I think it's the association of national advertisers, but the ANA, puts out some good, good thought leadership for advertisers by advertisers about what's working. So yeah, I'd check out all those resources uh, or they're happy to, your listeners are, are, should feel free to contact me. I'm happy to point them in the direction of any of the, the um, third-party research I mentioned today, happy to, to evangelize the, the great work that a lot of researchers out there have done. Awesome. Thank you very much, Chris. This has been great. Um, thank you very much to our Thanks listeners so. as well. Um, we'll be back soon with more CMO combos.